you would take out the word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 19 through 30. As we continue our study, joyful witnesses. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word at this time. The Apostle Paul sits in a Roman prison, a man who had been arrested and beaten and shackled and chained and shipped across the world to Rome on a prison ship. And in his heart is this church in Philippi that he loves so much, that serves him so well. And as he pins these letter, this letter with shackles on his wrist, it drips with joy. In the midst of difficulty, he considers others with great joy. Hear the word of Christ. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a father with a son, he served me with, it in, with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Oh God, we pray today that the glory of Christ would be made real. God, we live in a world where things are so chaotic and confusing. And God, we stand here with your word in our hand. And many of us, our hearts are jarring with anxiety and fear. And yet we hold in our hands the only thing that makes sense out of our life. Reverberating in our eardrums is the only thing real and true, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that in the gospel today, we would see the glory of Jesus. 
And we, too, would be willing to even give our lives for the work of Christ, knowing it is the only work that will be sustained for eternity. Oh, God, by your spirit, according to your word, do a great work here in these moments. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. it. Often uh, on social media, you will have memories that come up from uh, a year ago, six years ago. And uh, recently I was reminded uh, through Facebook memories, those things that come up that uh, almost exactly a year ago, my family was introduced to a rare disease, uh, ancanthamoeba. Maybe I said that right. Did I say it right? No, I didn't. I didn't. Okay. Well, if you Google it, it will spell check for you and you'll be able to find it. Just kind of type in the way it sounded. But it's a rare eye infection. And we were told that uh, I think two people in the state of Kentucky get this infection or this disease every year. Uh, and last year, our son Isaac was one of those people who had this infection in his eye. And I remember when Danae was explaining this to me, we had gone several weeks uh, talking about what was going on with his eye and kind of the way that I am. I was like, it's just a scratch. He plays basketball. It's just it's not a big deal. He's taking antibiotics. It's going to go away. And we went to doctor and doctor. And finally, she sat me down and said, no, this is this is more than just a scratch. And this is what the doctor is saying. And I remember she is telling me everything that's going on, how I I was thinking this, this can't be true. And then she began to explain that there really are no medicines that actually kill that infection. There's no medicine that does away with that disease or infection. What you have to do is you, you take certain medicines that contain the infection and you just hope and pray that it eventually goes dormant before it destroys your cornea and you have to have a cornea transplant. And that's certainly something we didn't want for our son at that time. And there was also the possibility that the infection could grow and go in through his eye to his spinal cord and it could be fatal. And so she's explaining all that to me in those moments. And immediately I'm going, okay, what do we need to do? Let's fix this. And she was like, I don't think you understand these medicines kind of work, sort of work, may work. And I was like, well, let's get them. Where can we get this medicine? And she began to tell me about a medicine. Well, they don't make it in the United States. And we began to research and there were places like New Zealand. And and I remember thinking, well, I guess I'll fly to New Zealand to, to get it. And how can we order it? How can we get it here? Can we get it here quicker than it would take for me to fly there and get it? And, and then we began contacting everybody that we knew in New Zealand, which was nobody. Uh, we began to call pastors and missionaries around the world. I think there was a guy in London who somehow I had a connection with. And I, I began texting him, hey, can you get this medicine for me? And then I began, then uh, Jim Martin finally connected us with an actually a veterinarian in Australia. And he was sending it to us. And, and I just remember that moment, like whatever it takes, I'll fly, I'll hike into mountains, Indiana Jones, this thing, we 
will get this medicine. We will we'll find it and, and we'll, even if there's a chance it works, we're going to figure it out and we're going to do whatever we can to get that medicine here. I, I also remember thinking, I don't care if I go in debt. I don't care how I have to get it. And I remember going to website after website and seeing the, 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 type of medicine there and, and under, and realizing, okay, this website's probably a scam. And as soon as I type my credit card information, everything we have will be gone. My identity will be stolen. And I, I remember not caring. Like if there's a chance we can, I, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get that here. We're going to take care of our son. We're going to save his eyesight. And that's what we're going to do. That is the mission at hand. And that's exactly the way the church in Philippi felt about the apostle Paul. Now, can you imagine thinking about that, uh, that way of someone who wasn't in your family? And yet the description of the way that they cared for the apostle Paul was that same sort of whatever it takes to meet your need. That's what we're going to do. Paul, who was preaching the gospel, who had been arrested, who is in a Roman jail cell. This church hears about it. And the first question is, what do you need, Paul? We we are longing to take care of you. And so they send a man named Epaphroditus. And and Epaphroditus traveled to Rome from Philippi. It, It was some 800 miles He traveled by foot, probably in a carriage, horse. He traveled across across sea and it could have taken him six months to a year to get there. But it was whatever it takes. And yet along the way, Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies before he makes it to the Apostle Paul. And yet he treks on whatever it takes to serve Paul, to minister to Paul. And yet there was a bigger vision behind why he's going. It was the gospel. We want the gospel to continue to move. And so we're going to take care of Paul. We're going to minister his needs, whatever it takes. And so as they send Epaphroditus to Paul, Paul turns around and does the same thing for them. There's controversy in the church. There's conflict in the church and they need pastoral care. And so what is the apostle Paul going to do? Who is, he can't be there. He's in prison. And so he sends Timothy and Timothy here is Paul's right hand man. They sent Paul their best. He's going to send back his best in the person of Timothy. Notice verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus. This is Paul's if the Lord wills. If it is Jesus's will and a part of his mission, I will send Timothy to you. Now, remember, Timothy What was a man who heard Paul preach the gospel in Lystra? His dad was a Greek, a Gentile who did not believe the gospel. And yet upon hearing the gospel, his mom is converted to Christ and his grandmother. And they they have taught Timothy the gospel. And Paul comes into town and he hears and he he meets up with Paul. And Paul's going to bring him alongside as a church planter, as a missionary to help him in the work of ministry. And, And Paul and Timothy are tight. Paul loves Timothy. This is his son in the faith. This is the one who's walked with him through very difficult seasons of life and ministry. And yet here, in light of the the Philippian sacrifice, he's going to sacrifice and send Timothy to them. And notice how he explains it. So that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. So I'm going to send back 
news of me. I want you to know how I'm doing in prison. I want you to know to live as Christ and to die as gain. Yeah, I may die in prison, but this is all about Jesus and I have great joy in my heart. I also want to know how you're doing. And he sends back Timothy to set, almost in in some sense, to, to help set the church straight. There's conflict there. But notice how he describes Timothy in verse 20. He says, I'm going to send him. And this is why it's such a sacrifice for Paul to send Timothy. For I have no one like him. The the word here is like soul. And, And Paul is at pains to describe. There is no one I know who compares to Timothy. Paul's really close to Timothy. But he also describes him here in a way that. There's no one his equal. He, there's no one on his level. That's who I'm sending you to. No, no one has ministered to me in such a way. But, but why is he so unique? Why is he so, uh, why, why, why would Paul say he is, there's no soul like him? Notice the text continues. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The word for genuine there. It is, it is solid. It's real. Timothy's not fake. Timothy is authentic. And there's no one who's going to step foot in your church and really care about you. And really be concerned for what's going on in the church. Nobody. Nobody you know is going to serve you the way Timothy will. Serve your welfare, your good. Notice, he says, for they all seek their own interest. They all vie for their their own good and not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is unique because he serves not himself, but he serves others. And Paul, in describing Timothy, teaches us something about uniqueness. About what it means to stand out and be special. We often tell our kids, you're special, or I want you to be special. And then we say, just be yourself. To be special, just be yourself. And that's not good advice. That's only half of the story. Because if we want our kids to just be who they are, be yourself, guess what they're naturally going to be? Selfish. They're going to be selfish if they're just themselves because everybody serves their own interest. But if we genuinely want them to be unique and if we want to look at them and say, you're special, it's not in athletic achievement. It's not in, in, in the grades. It's not in good manners. It's that they are themselves surrendered to Jesus, which is the uniqueness of Timothy here. He serves Jesus first and foremost. And that's how Paul can say, that's why I know he's going to serve you first and foremost, because it's the glory of Christ that matters the most to him. And he's going to be selfless in serving you. And so if you want to stand out in the world, you know, some of us have that sort of contrarian attitude about us. Somebody says something, we want to be different. Somebody dresses a certain way. We want to dress a different way. Someone names their kid this. Oh, I can't name my kid that. I got to get a different name. Well, if you want to be unique, you want to be different. Care about others more than you care about yourself. Because everybody in the world cares first and foremost about themselves. That's our natural lean. 
And yet you walk into work, you walk into social media, you walk into church, you walk into your home and you make the decision. I'm not going to put myself first. You will be unique. You will be a light in darkness. But how does it happen? He, he says how it happens here. He cares first and foremost for the interest of Jesus. If you wake up in the morning and you say, my life is about the glory of Christ, you will be unique. You will be special. You will stand out. The glory of Christ means more than anything to me. My life is given over to making much of Jesus. Guess what you'll naturally do? You will naturally serve others. Because it's the glory of Christ in his preeminence that weans you off of your self-interest. And weans you off of your glory. And more and more you want Christ to be glorified. And how do you experience that? When you serve others. When you're not caring about yourself and you're serving others. You experience the great joy of the glory of Christ in your life. That's how it's experienced. But notice he continues. You know Timothy's proven worth. You know how faithful this man has been. And notice when we talk about Timothy here and his worth, remember the apostle Paul has said he's called us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember when we put everything on the scales, what really matters to me? The gospel is to outweigh it all. And everyone is to look into your life and say, what is it that is most important to him? The gospel outweighs it all. And he says, here, you know that about Timothy. You've seen the way that he serves. You've seen the way that he lives his life. You know his worth. But notice he continues, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. How has he proven his worth? In his gospel ministry, his commitment to the gospel. You prove that the gospel means more than anything to you when you give yourself over to serving the gospel. And he says here, like a son with his father, we are that close in the gospel. But what has bound us together? Our mission in the gospel. This, this is how, this is why Timothy is so is worth so much to me is because he has given his life over for the sake of the gospel with me. And then verse 23 says, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul's going to be on trial. And he says, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. But if I can't come, Timothy, Timothy is worth more than all others because he's so committed to the gospel. And I know, I know he will be committed to the gospel in your midst. And you've got to understand that your worth, my worth our impact in the world we look around and we say what am i doing here what 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 am i going to mean what what am i going to mean to the people around me years from now hundreds of years from now What, what will be my worth it is determined by your commitment to the gospel of jesus christ it's the only thing that's going to last And that is what proves your worth to all of those around you. My worth as a pastor is determined first and foremost by my commitment to preach the gospel. Period. It's not if you like me. It's not if you think I have a jazzy personality. Make you smile, make you laugh every Sunday. 
He's just a good guy. That doesn't matter if I don't preach the gospel. Now, I got to be some of those other things sometimes so that you listen to me. But if I don't preach the gospel, I'm worthless. I'm worthless as a pastor. The glory of God and your good is at stake. When you suffer, like so many of us are suffering right now, and I remind you, Jesus suffered, and he suffered for your sin, and he was raised from the dead. You, you want to look back on my ministry and say, yeah, when we were all scared, when we were all fearful, he reminded us that Jesus is back from the dead and Jesus will rule and reign forever. And that is the good news that we stake our life on. That is my worth to you today. That is my value to you today is that I would first and foremost be committed to the gospel. And it's the same thing in your homes, parents. Your value and your worth to your kids is determined first and foremost by your commitment to the glory of God and serving them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, I know, I know when you walk out of the delivery room with them, you just have all these dreams and visions and they're going to be so great. They're going to, they're going to play in the NBA, the NFL, the MLB, and they're going to do it all just like Bo Jackson. And they're going to be so awesome and they're going to make great grades. And then they're going to produce wonderful grandkids. And I just, this is going to be so great. Oh, you, you can cultivate all of that in them and have all those hopes and dreams for them. And they go to hell. And your parenting be worthless. You could leave them a fortune when you die. If they don't look back on your life a hundred years from now and go, that man loved Jesus. He was committed to the gospel. And yeah, he took care of us. But the priority in our home was Jesus. I wasn't the priority. Your kids aren't the priority. Their sports aren't the priority. First and foremost, their grades aren't the priority. The priority is that they know they're sinners and they believe in Jesus. And you've got to display that for them. A hundred years from now, they're not going to care that you let them Google at their iPhone at the dinner table or not. It's not going to matter. Your value is determined according to your commitment to the gospel. The same thing with your spouse. So often... In marriages, we think about one another as just sort of business partners who who move through life together and we're on this mission together and we begin to think about one another and ourselves. What do I bring to the table? How much money do you make? How how much money do I make? What are we bringing to the table today? Well, we've got this mission of raising and training these kids and what do you bring to the table in light of that? What do I bring to the table? And we sort of just move through life that way and we, we begin to determine our value and our spouse's value upon what we bring to the table. If you're not bringing the gospel to the table in marriage, you're worthless to your spouse. There's no worth in that. And you wake up every morning and you say, I want my wife to experience the love of Christ, the one who gave himself for the church. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes today that she might know that. That's your worth. That's your worth in your marriage. It, you say, I want my husband to know what, what, what a church that, that 
that follows and respects and surrenders to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, what that looks like. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to respect him in public and private. And I'm going to make sure that he, he experiences the gospel. That's your worth to your spouse is that you're committed to the gospel. First and foremost, your worth as a friend is determined by your commitment to the gospel. How many people walk away from you these days refreshed because they heard the gospel? Think about everything everybody's hearing today. Everybody has an opinion. And we, we begin every conversation, it seems like these days, with this con- I'm sort of evaluating this interaction so I can make sure that I get my opinions and my views on, you know, the IFR of COVID-19 and if masks really work. And, and I, I've got to figure out, well, what do you think about everything that's going on? And it, it's great and fine to talk about that. But if people walk away from your conversations just more stressed out and frustrated then you're worthless as a friend. It's okay to talk about those things. We need to talk about those things. But what's most important in your friendships is you stop and you go, yeah, all that stuff's a mess. But Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against him or his church. Jesus died for my sins and he is raised from the dead. And Corona doesn't wear the crown Jesus does. Your worth, your value right now. And we are in such a unique opportunity to be gospel people committed to the gospel and talking about the gospel. And we are so distracted and we're so confused right now. And it's spiritual warfare to come back and say, no, this is about the gospel. And my worth to you in this conversation, and this conversation is worthless if I don't get it back to Jesus. And remind you that Jesus is the only one that makes sense out of everything. Notice as the text continues... He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So he's sending Timothy, this one who is worth invaluable to Paul. And now he sends Epaphroditus back. And notice his description of Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. This man is like family to me. We are bound in the gospel together. And he is a fellow servant, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. We have been in the foxhole together. He is, he has suffered. I have suffered and we are bound together in our suffering and warfare for the sake of the gospel and your messenger. You can even translate that angel. He has been sent out with the message, the gift that you sent to me to minister to my need. And notice he begins to describe Epaphroditus's other centeredness here in a way that is astounding. For he has been longing for you, for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Does that make sense to you? Why is he worried about the church? Why is Epaphroditus with Paul anxious? Because the church is worried about him. (laughs) I don't want the church to be worried about me. You see how, you see how selfless that is of Epaphroditus? I'm worried about them because they're worried about me. I gotta get back to them. I gotta get back and make sure they're not worried about me. Epaphroditus isn't 
Oh, woe is me. I've suffered to the point of death. I hope, I hope I can get back and do my Sunday night missionary testimony and I can stand up in front of the church, in front of the youth group and everybody think, wow, he's radical. He almost died. No, he's just, I got to get back to them. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his own glory. This is why Paul has to even describe it here because Epaphroditus isn't the sort of guy that's going to show up in church and say, let me tell you what I did for Jesus. No, Paul has to describe it in detail. And notice he does here in verse 27. He says, for he was ill near to death. He got sick along the way and almost died. But God had mercy on him. And not only him, but also on me. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. We don't really know what kind of sickness he had. But it put him down. And it wasn't as if he was going to keep moving on. And he almost died. And can you imagine coming out of the the sick bed? I got to get back to Philippi. This is too dangerous. No, what does he do? He treks on to the Apostle Paul. Whatever it takes. And Paul says, I'm glad he did because God had mercy upon him. Epaphroditus was tangible mercy for Paul. Notice he says... Unless I would have had sorrow upon sorrow, meaning wave, I would have been obliterated by the waves of sorrow. I would have drowned in sorrow if God had taken taken this man from us. And so now he says, verse eight, I am the more eager to send him. Now that doesn't make sense. God saved Epaphroditus's life to serve Paul. Paul's thankful, but then he says, now I'm going to get rid of him. And send him back to you. Because he's of value to you. I'm going to send Timothy to you. And I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you. We see the other centeredness of Paul. These men who are worth so much. These men who have risked so much. These men who he loves. And he says, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him. I, I care about you. I care about you seeing that he's okay. I care about the, this man's ministry in the context of this church. And he says that I may be less anxious. And there's a way he describes it there that can, that almost describes Paul's sorrow in sending him back. He says, I will be less anxious. And what is Paul saying? I want you to have the joy. I'll take the anxiety. I'll take anxiety so that you have joy. How often would you say that for others in your life? I'll be stricken with the anxiety so that you can have joy. I will bear the brunt of the stress, the weight, the burden, so that you may rejoice. Now, what do we often do? Hey, I want you to relieve my anxiety. I want you to take the stress away. But we see Paul's other centeredness here. And he says, verse 29, so receive him in the Lord. Rejoice, he says, with all joy. Remember throughout Philippians word joy, glad, happiness. It's just a verb. He's looking at them and saying, when he gets back, joy, glad, happy. He's describing it as a verb. It's not even be happy. It's a command. Have happy. Joy. When he gets back, you should have joy in the Lord. And notice he says, honor such men. Now, 
So often we think, well, we shouldn't honor anybody but Jesus. But here he says, in the Lord and with great joy, you honor him. Literally, you put him on a pedestal. Why? For he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. These are the sort of people you honor in the church. Those who would die for Jesus. Those who would give their life for the work of Christ. And that's why it's okay to honor such people because they're so few and far between. And so you, you lift them up and you put them on a pedestal. Why? Because they mirror and mimic Jesus. Remember a few weeks ago, Jesus, who set everything aside, humbled himself, became a man, became a slave, became a curse. And now Epaphroditus mimics Jesus. And I want you to be reminded of Jesus so you put him on a pedestal. And see, what Paul does for the church here is he establishes a culture of humiliation that leads to exaltation. And it reminds us of the gospel. Jesus was humble and now he is exalted. Jesus became a no name and now he has the name above every name. And we establish that culture in the church by honoring those who humbly serve and are willing to give their life over for the sake of the gospel. This is the pattern here. Epaphroditus wasn't the guy vying for recognition because guys who vie for recognition will not die for Jesus. The folks who would die for Jesus are those who say, I don't care if you recognize me or not. This is all about Jesus. And he says, put those people on a pedestal, exalt them because you got to be reminded of that to be united in the church, that it's the gospel and it's Jesus that matters more than anything. And this is the pattern that he establishes. And how different is that from the pattern most of us have experienced in church life? We don't have a culture of humiliation that leads to exaltation. We have a a culture where people just fight for exaltation. I've got to get front and center. I've got to be the loudest. I've got to be the most assertive. And what so often happens in churches are those who run to the front and push everybody else away and they stand up front. Those are the people we just sort of subconsciously honor because we don't really have a choice because they're the loudest. Because they're the most assertive. And you know what happens in the context of the church when we just sort of cater to that? And the people who want to be front and center, we let them be front and center. We talk about how great they are, even though they annoy us. We establish cultures where there is no sacrifice. There's no sacrifice. Pushing, asserting yourself, being the loudest. I'm going to get to the front and I'm going to be seen. That's not sacrifice. That's that's self-centeredness. And we prop up self-centeredness when we cater to it. No, what Paul tells the church to do is you put on a pedestal those who don't want to be on the pedestal. You recognize those who the last thing in the world would be for them to want to be recognized. And you know what? You know, you have to do that yourself. That 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 cultivates humility in your life when you're walking around the church and you're looking for people who go unnoticed. Hey, nobody noticed that you sent that letter. Handwritten note of encouragement. I want you to know how important that was to me. Hey, nobody would ever know that you're doing this. Nobody would ever know that you sanitized the toilets 59 times this week. 
But I'm going to point it out because that keeps me from thinking it's all about me. And I have to cultivate that in my own life. When be, but when you walk in and everybody's vying for attention, the culture of the church has got to be to look for those who don't want attention. And I was thinking about so many people here this week who right now I could just talk about. It's such a culture here. And yet, the, the one person just kept coming to my mind is Kay Fusen. Next week... Uh, Kay will not be leading our children's ministry. But there is no one who deserves to be on the pedestal of sacrificial service than her. And honored. And, and made known that she is such a value to our church. No one. She she has served our children's ministry, led our children's ministry during a time of explosive growth. We... There were some days we were like, I don't, I, don't ask me because I don't know what we're about to do. We're going to rent out Excel and then we're going to rent out Hardee's and then we're going to rent out everything else down the road to fit all these kids in. And I, I would go talk, I was stressed and I would go talk to Kay and I was like, get stressed! Because she wasn't. And I, I would stand here and I'd see kids running around, teachers throwing chairs and everything going on back there and I was like... That's nobody threw a chair. And I would run to her and go, is everything okay? She'd be like, what are you talking about? Just go back and preach. And never once complained. She's one of the most kindest people I know. And she lives with Patrick. So she's one of the most, so she's one of the most godly people we all know just to be able to do that. But she also served in children's ministry during some of the most difficult times in her life and didn't stop. I remember when Hannah was at the hospital at the beach and every time I talked to her, she just cared about what was going on in children's ministry. I was like, okay, we, we got this. And there were times, difficulty, I'd say, hey, do you want us to get somebody else to do it? She said, if I don't, if I don't serve right now, <laughs> I don't know what I'll do. That's, that's where I find joy and delight. And so many times last summer when Danae and I were stressed about our own son, his sickness and what this looks like. And we were so fearful. Kay and Patrick were such an encouragement to us. Their home was always open. Such an encouragement to us. And I just want to praise you today, Kay. Thank you for serving us so faithfully. And, and we're going to do that a little bit more next week. But um, last summer, I, I, I was thinking today of w- what we're going through now. And then last summer, the anxiety that was in our hearts as we were trying to take care of Isaac. And I, I remember being so thankful for Danae. And, and I remember being so thankful for our kids because... Never once did did they look at Isaac and say, come on, man. I mean, we're ready to go to the beach. I remember even sitting down and trying to think through, how are we going to get everybody to the beach? Because Isaac couldn't be there the whole time. And how are we going to do it? And we had kids saying, I won't have to go. I'll stay here. I'll drive. I'll ride with them. 
And I remember being so thankful for my, my kids in that moment. And, and we would wake up in the middle of the night and every 30 minutes we were putting eye drops into his eye. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, it was, it was an inconvenience. But never once did we say, Isaac, come on, man. You're such a burden. Like this, this is wearing us out. Like, would you get over yourself? Would you, would you appreciate us a little bit more? Nobody was doing that. Why? Because the person mattered more than anything. And the mission mattered more than anything to us. And while we would have never asked for those moments and while we never asked for similar situations, we can, in the midst of very serious, difficult situations, life and death situations, look at other people and say, I don't want to be going through this, but it is a joy for me to serve you right now. You can take delight in the service and making them more important than yourself and find great joy in that because you love them and the mission is more important. All the more so with Jesus. Is there any more, any person more important to us than Jesus? And yet we so often say to Jesus, would you recognize me a little bit more? This is such a burden. We put Jesus on our schedule. I'll serve you this much. And if I serve you this much, I need to be recognized this much. And yet Jesus is the one who gave his life for us. Jesus is the one who died for us. Jesus is the one who said, no matter what, whatever it takes, I'm going to humble myself to becoming a curse on a cross for you. And we say with great joy, it is a delight to serve Jesus. His glory and the good of others means more than anything to us.